Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and uh, this is the next part in the series that I've been doing on the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. Previously we've talked about Woodrow Wilson and Georges Clemenceau and now obviously we're going to talk about David Lloyd George. And it's important to think that uh, David Lloyd George wasn't there uh, on his own simply representing Great Britain but he was part of the British Empire delegation so he was accompanied by the prime ministers of Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Previously on this podcast I've talked about David Lloyd George quite a lot, um, particularly his role during the First World War as Minister of Munitions and then as uh, Minister of War and then from 1916 onwards Uh, following the crisis over the introduction of conscription, Prime Minister. He had replaced in 1916 the uh, curiously disinterested Herbert Asquith, whose uh, behaviour can only be described as an almost dereliction of duty. The uh, figures within the cabinet, Kitchener, Churchill... Jackie Fisher and Lloyd George had secreted themselves away into a separate war cabinet and uh, involved themselves in such schemes as Gallipoli. Partly the lack of overall control by Asquith, who seemed to be uh, entirely mentally preoccupied, perhaps with a rather colourful private life, I'm not sure... Uh, entirely mentally preoccupied away from matters to do with the war was one of the factors that undermined him. But the Asquithian liberals, once Lloyd George had taken the top job and appeared to have stabbed Asquith in the back, they never forgave Lloyd George again. The liberals had been in a national government with the Conservative Party since 1915 and by 1916... Lloyd George found himself more and more reliant on Conservatives to support him. 
as a large chunk of our Scythian liberals found themselves in opposition to the government. And Lloyd George found himself in the position of having a good relationship with Andrew Bonalore, the Conservative leader, but in the knowledge that the Conservatives would attempt to replace him at some point in the near future, he actually manages to uh, go on till 1923, which is uh, something of a feat. And the, his main threat obviously comes from disgruntled Liberals, uh, particularly the former Prime Minister Herbert Asquith looking to pick up on any slip that Lloyd George makes, and particularly any mistake that Lloyd George was going to make at the Paris Peace Conference. Due to the close proximity of Great Britain, Lloyd George had to hop across the Channel a couple of times. Not only the beginnings of revolution in Ireland, but labour unrest, including uh, the danger of a police strike and possibility of mutiny in the army of soldiers wanting to be demobbed as fast as possible from places like the training camp at Etarpel, and um, unrest amongst the industrial workforce of Great Britain, and the um, necessity of having to campaign in the coupon election of December 1918, meant that Lloyd George was really quite preoccupied with domestic matters in a way that Wilson wasn't. Wilson really takes a good six months off, uh, having returning once uh, in spring recess to America, but um, not uh, being really in direct contact with uh, American politics per se. In her book Peacemakers, uh, Margaret Macmillan has an excellent summary of David Lloyd George. She says, Lloyd George was made for politics, from the hard work in the committee rooms to the great campaigns, he loved it all. While he enjoyed the cut and the thrust of debate, he was essentially good-natured, and like Wilson and Clemenceau, he did not hate his opponents. Nor was he an intellectual in politics. Although he had read widely, he preferred to pick the brains of experts. On his feet, there was no one quicker. He invariably conveyed a mastery of his subject. Once during the peace conference, Keynes, that being John Maynard Keynes, and a colleague realised that they had given him the wrong briefing on the Adriatic. They hastily put a revised position on a sheet of paper and rushed it to the meeting, where they found Lloyd George already launched on his subject. As Keynes passed over the paper, Lloyd George glanced it at it, and without a pause, gradually modified his arguments until he ended up with the opposite position to the one he had started out with. So Lloyd George's um, ability to be mercurial, ability to be changeable, to change his positions, and his skill in uh, debate and oratory gave the impression that uh, he was a subject specialist and a great number of things and impeccably well briefed. Now the problem with the Paris Peace Conference as it was dealing with everything from the problem of what to do about Germany, how to incorporate Russia back into the world system which never really uh, is addressed fully, not to do about the mandates, not to do about places like Greece, about Poland, about Palestine, there is uh, an inability uh, with even the most comprehensive team for everybody to know everything. And Lloyd George certainly doesn't know everything, but gives him the he gives the impression that he almost does. He's an interesting figure as well, in that whilst he is 
Prime Minister of Great Britain. He is never really accepted as part of Britain's ruling elite. Coming from a village Lanwitzdamne in North Wales, his father was a schoolmaster. He wasn't quite as working class as he often portrayed himself to be. He is, was a, a member of the lower middle classes, and uh, perhaps the the kind of the aspirant upper artisan working classes of the the late nineteenth century. And he was never going to be fully accepted into the world of the English aristocracy, who obviously dominate British politics at the uh, dawn of the 20th century, and arguably still do. The figure of outsider had enabled him to cast his withering eye over the generals uh, on the Western Front during the battles from 1916 onwards, where he had uh, been uh, had outraged people such as uh, Haig and Sir John French with his, uh, what he they viewed as, as utter insolence. After all, how dare this member of the lower orders question them on the number of machine guns uh, they're using. The reality was, of course, that in some instances, Douglas Haig was an innovator on the battlefield, certainly after the Battle of the Somme, but in many other guises he still advocated the use of cavalry and even in the 1920s was addressing people, uh, addressing uh, audiences, suggesting that cavalry was still going to be the weapon of the future. So after the armistice in 1918 and the title that Lloyd, the popular press gave Lloyd George as the man that won the war, Lloyd George believed that he had the mandate to conduct the peace as he saw fit. He believed that he could be the man who won the war and the man who won the peace. So he ignored the Foreign Office uh, when he felt felt like it, which was um, very often. Um, And he brought in his uh, own staff with him to Paris. And his private secretary, Philip Kerr, who is a devout and... Uh, academic, high-minded sort of character becomes Lloyd George's gatekeeper. Uh, Bureaucrats and diplomats and ambassadors have to leave their correspondence with Kerr to be passed on to Lloyd George and Kerr does the the sifting. He knows that Lloyd George doesn't like having to wade through papers and this way Lloyd George could filter out the requests to him or the appeals made to him that he didn't want to have to bother with in the first place. Whilst one could never accuse Lloyd George of being a dictator, certainly at certain points in his career he borders on being an autocrat. At Paris he is liberated from many of the constraints of cabinet government and during the war A.J.P. Taylor in his uh, History of England 1914 to 1945 argues that Britain came closer to having during the First World War a Napoleon in the guise of Lloyd George than at any other point in the country's history. However, this rather shrewd character that we talk about was appallingly ignorant as well. He didn't really understand geographically the difference between Ankara, the capital of the Turkish Empire, and Mecca, the holy city of Islam, in the middle of what is now Saudi Arabia. He was uh, unaware as to who uh, people such as the Slovaks were, or the Croats, the vast myriad 
the vast tapestry of Central European peoples about whose fate were decided at that Paris and whose nationalist disputes had led to many of the tensions that had created the First World War, he had uh, little understanding of and mercifully had Lord Curzon at his shoulder to help correct him on, on some of these, these issues. However, he had the ability to focus on the core things to him that mattered, so really Britain's interests, the gaining of further imperial territory under the umbrella of the mandate system, and also making sure that British trade and British naval power were protected. And as we've already seen in his negotiations with Clemenceau, his eye was on Mosul in northern Mesopotamia, what is now present-day Iraq, and the oil supplies that he knew to be there, and the ability that he had to access that and to really pull the wool over Clemenceau's eyes was a real sticking point between the two men. Clemenceau flies off the handle with rage when he realises why it is Lloyd George says, I must have Mosul. One fact that underlies all of Lloyd George's negotiating positions is that the British army begins to virtually evaporate during 1919. It decreases in size by 66%. The British army in 1914, the expeditionary force, had been some 75,000 men, and it had increased in size to several million. Obviously, in peacetime, these kinds of deployments are unsustainable, and Britain has never had a tradition of a large standing peacetime army. It's just unnecessary for an island nation. And a, a big restless army and a parliamentary democracy are uneasy bedfellows. One tends to get rid of the other, former normally to latter. So there was rapid pressure to demobilise the British army as quickly as possible, mainly because the soldiers fed up of war wanted to go home and there was likely to be, and there certainly was, serious unrest when they don't get to go home quite as quickly as they'd hoped for. Britain in 1916 had gone from being a creditor nation to a debtor nation and the American hegemony, economic hegemony, in 1916 had begun and so paying for everything was extremely difficult. Britain owes the United States of America, and keeping men in the field is very difficult, and therefore being able to prevent, present a kind of a cudgel to Germany, um, and or else, is very difficult too. America wishes to return to isolation as quickly as possible, and the ability of Britain to determine events in countries such as Greece, um, the Middle East, becomes ever weaker throughout the Paris Peace Conference. Peace Conference. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is only ever really possible when one side or the winning side still maintains the physical force to enforce them. However, fortunately for the British, at the end of the war, Britain had already got many of the things that it had wanted. The German fleet had sailed to Scapa Flow, and the uh, German fleet was no longer going to be a service fleet, was no longer going to be a threat uh, to the British. Um, the majority of the German submarine fleet had also been surrendered to the British at Harwich uh, on, the, on, on the English coast. The coaling stations, harbours and telegraph stations uh, of the German Empire had either been seized by Japan or the British, giving uh, the British far greater reach in places such as the Pacific. And German colonies at the conference were waiting really to be snapped up. The other threat to Britain, the wartime ally, the Russian Empire, had now been eliminated, at least for a period of time, as a result of the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War, and that meant the threat that Russia had traditionally posed to India was at least postponed, if not in the eyes of the British, uh, permanently derailed. And along the southern border of the new communist Russia, a British cordon basically exists. British influence in Persia and India and Afghanistan made the uh, made there a kind of a British perimeter maintaining uh, preventing communism from spreading southwards a British presence in the Middle East and the conquest of places like Palestine and Mesopotamia and British presence in Arabia meant that communications with India were now better than ever even though India in 1919 uh, experiences some of the worst revolutionary upheavals uh, that the British Empire have ever encountered there. 
resulting in the disastrous Amritsar massacre, um, which I believe I did a podcast on two or three years ago, and will be in this archive uh, if you want to go back. It's when I talk about the Amritsar massacre, I talk about it in a much bigger um, revolutionary context in India, based around the failure to offer India home rule at the end of the First World War. So even before the conference started, Lloyd George was in an attractive position, far more so than Clemenceau, who wanted to secure the security of France into the future and knew that this was going to be a big ask and a very difficult thing, creating a, a bilateral, a trilateral agreement with Britain and the United States. Clemenceau, as we know, was very dubious about the merits of the planned League of Nations. And we know, obviously, that Wilson was in a uh, position where he could come to Paris and try to impose the new rules of the world that would establish an American economic and trade hegemony. But Wilson himself doesn't really have things go all his own way and is quite in quite difficult positions with Louis George and Clemence, very canny political operators. So Louis George is in a, a, a very strong position. As I've mentioned uh, on, in this podcast, Lloyd George was interested in acquiring mandates from the Ottoman Empire and the German Empire and was quite the imperialist, despite the fact that he had been a radical part, a radical uh, member of the Liberal Party uh, during the uh, first and the second Liberal governments um, after 1906. Louis George was still an ardent imperialist, and it's very difficult sometimes for us here in the 21st century to get our heads around this one. The idea now of an individual who is socially radical, um, who believes in, say, corporations paying their taxes and that kind of things, the idea that that person in the 21st century would also be um, an imperialist with rather dubious views on race would be completely incompatible. It was compatible in the 19th century and the early 20th century. It was simply a given in the eyes of Edwardian imperialists that uh, people in uh, Africa and Asia needed to be colonised, they needed the tutelage of white Europeans to help to elevate them as uh, civilised nations, and as a result, one could bring export the kind of social radicalism um, and welfare that Lloyd George had brought about during the People's Budget overseas, and there would be opportunities to do that. I mean, obviously it's all offensive and um, misguided nonsense, but that's looking at things from a very 21st century perspective, which, you know, is a very ahistorical way of, of, of thinking about things, which we must try to avoid at all times. Lloyd George did believe in home rule for the Dominions, though, for the white Dominions of New Zealand, Australia, Canada and South Africa, and indeed Ireland. And he also hoped that, he didn't think this was ever really going to be possible, but he hoped that there was going to be the possibility for Indian home rule. And he decided in 1916 that he would consult all the Dominions on their views on the best way to win the war. He had uh, a belief that things were uh, better run when there was more localised decision-making 
and perhaps being from the periphery, being from Wales and not being part of the uh, in-elite group of British establishment, established society, uh, made this more likely. There are two figures from the Dominions who have an immense amount of sway over Lloyd George uh, and the British Empire delegation during the conference. The first is Billy Hughes, the Australian Prime Minister, who had been to London to consult on the war in 1916 and who had uh, priorities uh, gaining hold of ja uh, former German mandates uh, in the Pacific, particularly Nauru, um, and also the, I, the desire to ensure safety for Australia from Japan, who um, the Australian government saw as being the next encroaching power in the Pacific. And it wasn't simply a Jap the threat and fear of Japanese militarism and uh, Japanese um, imperialism that they worried about. It was the uh, threat to their white Australia that uh, was posed by Japanese and Asian immigration. So keeping Japanese immigrants out of Australia um, was a key priority of Billy Hughes and he chose to do that by preventing the Japanese claim for racial equality. The, the leader of the Japanese delegation, uh, Prince Sayonji, uh, proposed at the Paris Peace Conference. And it is this, uh, one that is a contributory factor in Japan re recognising itself as not treated as an equal and a deep nationalist uh, resentment emerging in Japan in, in the interwar years. It's not the only reason, but it's a, a significant factor. The other individual who's uh, worth talking about, perhaps even in a separate podcast, because he's such a prolific figure in twentieth century history, is the South African ge general and statesman Jan Smuts who also had an immense role to play in the Second World War, who was a confidant to Lloyd George and later to Churchill, and who even ventures into revolutionary Russia during the conference to see if it's possible to make contact with Lenin and the Bolsheviks to find out what it is specifically they want. It had been initially assumed as a typical British conceit that the Dominions would simply become part of the British delegation. Lloyd George was canny enough to see that the rising power of the Dominions and the amount of money that they'd spent in the war, the amount of blood that had been shed, uh, meant that this was no longer a viable uh, idea. But there were innumerable British bureaucrats and diplomats that simply assumed that Britain, of course, would speak on behalf of its uh, dominions and understood specifically what they wanted, and that their needs were completely and wholly compatible with Britain's needs anyway. And it's these sorts of decisions that make sense, really, of decades of resentments and irritations, particularly from Australia uh, towards Great Britain, and a sense that British uh, rulers and the British ruling classes are high-handed and arrogant and presumptuous. 
And the Dominions knew that they had power. Uh, the Australians and the Canadians and the Indians had put in, and the New Zealanders and the South Africans indeed, had been of immense value to the British during the war. And Billy Hughes makes the uh, pertinent point that if the Dominions are not properly represented at the peace conference, then the next time that Britain needs to call on Australian or Canadian manpower, it may not be available. And the uh, British are shocked by this. They are taken aback. The Americans are looking by this war. Very interesting. Uh, Colonel House, the advisor to Woodrow Wilson, believed that this was a key moment in the breakup of the British Empire. I'm not so sure... Um, because the British Empire is still highly durable uh, up until for another 50 years. But it sh- certainly shows um, more autonomy on the part of the Dominions. And the First World War had put an immense strain on the cohesiveness of empire. And the demands that are placed on the Dominions are such that they have every justification, not just to the British, but to their domestic populations at home uh, to resist um, the possibility of future mobilisation unless there is some kind of diplomatic quid pro quo. And really, the British Empire relied upon a sense of Australians and Canadians and New Zealanders of feeling patriotic towards the mother country in in order to call on their uh, manpower in order to win the war. So I'll finish there for now and obviously we'll uh, resume this uh, exploration of the Paris Peace Conference bit by bit over the next uh, few weeks I think. But the British Empire delegation is very very different from either of the American or the French delegations. It has uh, some priorities that are already met, uh, others which are very um, diffuse, and uh, there are different centres of decision-making in the uh, different Dominion uh, delegations at the Paris Peace Conference, and they don't all speak with one voice, even though they have this quite mercurial and changeable and very skilled politician in the guise of Lloyd George right at their heart. Anyway, I hope you found that useful and I'll catch you on the next podcast. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.